Yeah, good morning, everyone. Um, This Christmas, uh, I'm sure many of us got together with our families, although maybe not quite as many as we would have hoped, or maybe in as large gatherings as we'd hoped. Of course, whenever we do get together with families, whether it is at Christmas or at other times of the year, there are the regular features, are there not? Food is always a big one as far as I'm concerned. My mother-in-law comes from a family of great cooks, and any family day on that side does involve many good meals and lots of good food, and particularly lots of great puddings usually, which I love. At family get-togethers, you may also get games, plenty of games. They might have your family favourites, whether they're board games or charades or something like that. And of course, they've all got their own family rules, haven't they, and in-jokes. And then there are the family stories that get repeated at each gathering, no matter how many times everyone's heard them already, particularly when a new person shows up, like a new boyfriend or girlfriend, and uh, everyone comes out with all their funny, embarrassing ones. Like when the time when my little sister, when she was a young girl but old enough to know better, was walking through a field after it had rained, stepping in what she thought were wet molehills, but actually were cowpats. Or the time, which is one of Becky's favourite ones, when I chose the largest, sharpest knife to separate frozen crumpets, and we spent Sunday night in A&E as a sliced open thumb. That was early on in our marriage. She stuck with me, so it's okay. I wonder if at Mary's family gatherings, they start with, remember that time you saw the angel? But it's a question that got me thinking about when and how and why and where did Mary share this story for the first time? And who did she tell it to? We suspect probably Elizabeth. It records that she went immediately and spoke to Elizabeth. Not months later, when maybe she needed a story to hide a telltale a bump, but immediately. She went and told this story to Elizabeth. And we'll see that, I think, in the future weeks. But our story today takes place in Nazareth, a small town in Galilee, a town that's never mentioned in the Old Testament, probably had as few as four or 500 people living it in the time, although it depends which sources you look at, and isn't even mentioned outside the Bible for another couple of hundred years after these events. And it takes us to meet a young girl, engaged to be married. We don't know very much about Mary, but we can assume that as she's engaged, she's probably a teenager, probably a young teenager, And this engagement was, as we probably are aware, a legal status as sacred as marriage itself in the culture at the time. What we do know is that she's a female in a world that valued males. As one writer put it, she's an almost child in a world that reveres age and wisdom, a nobody in a nowhere town. And after nearly 400 years of silence, as it were, from God, he shows up to this young girl in this unexpected place. But how likely is it that all this happened? Well, you could say it's very unlikely and you'd probably be correct, but since when has God been restricted to what's likely? Was the creation of the universe likely? Was the burning bush or the parting of the sea likely? Was a shepherd boy, the youngest of eight sons, becoming a great king likely? And, as we heard last week, was a barren old woman becoming pregnant likely? If we believe that there is something else in this universe other than us, if we believe there is a God who has some ability to influence the universe and was in some way behind the beginning of all things, then unlikely things are going to happen from time to time. And I think if we're here this morning, we probably believe in more than that. So this 
event, this splitting of a cell into two, is probably low down on the list of God's impossible achievements. So we're going to think more, not so much about the how of the virgin birth, but the why and the so what. Now, there's a great theologian. Well, he's my father-in-law. But he wrote, in, he wrote a book called Prince of Peace in the World of Wars. And he described this as God putting his audacious salvation plan to work in a most unlikely way. And the title of today's talk is The Lord's Servant. And we're going to look at this passage from her perspective, from the Lord's Servant perspective, Mary's perspective, and see how she reacts to each of the things the angel says. The angel says three different things, and so we'll look at those three in turn and Mary's response to each. The angel begins by greeting them. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Well, that's a nice way to be greeted, isn't it? The message translation puts it this way. Good morning. You're beautiful with God's beauty, beautiful inside and out. God be with you. I wonder when you wake in the morning and see your family for the first time, or when you see a friend you haven't seen for a while, do you greet them this well? The other morning, my 12-year-old son came in with a cup of tea. Oh, good morning. You're wonderful. And I fed the cats, he said. Oh, God be with you. I think, though, mostly if I went around greeting people like this, people might start to think I was just a bit odd. I began my marriage proposal to Becky with a few sentences telling her how wonderful she was. She later confessed she started thinking, why is he being weird, before she, t- <laughs> before she did twig where I was going. Highly favoured, though, is probably an accurate description of Mary here. We have a young girl who's been chosen by God to carry out a most special and important role in God's audacious salvation plan. But unsurprisingly, Mary's response is concern. She doesn't actually say anything in response in verse 29. But it is described as confused or disturbed. The message again says, wondered what was behind a greeting like that. Mum, Dad, you're wonderful and great. Every parent's response, What's it, what have you done? Or what do you want? She's troubled at this greeting. What is coming? There's an image, and this is the Annunciation from a carving from Worcester Cathedral. Mary on the right is turned away, almost. Is it in fear? Surprise? Thought or worry like the actors in dramas who turn away when they've been given important or troubling news? I don't know, many, I don't know if people normally do that in real life, do we? But they always do it in dramas, don't they? They turn away to process this troubling news they've received. Is it in fear out of the awesome sight? I find this, this carving, and there's a couple more along, along with it in the cathedral, very uh, human, because this one, she's turned away. The next one is Mary and Elizabeth hugging, looking a bit worried, if you can look worried in a 13th century carving. And then the one after is uh, the nativity scene with Mary lying down in bed, which is a very normal response, I think, to having given birth, from my own experience of watching Becky go through it. But um, they're very human responses, I think, and very normal. Whatever it is, this reaction doesn't look like enthusiasm, does it? And certainly probably didn't seem like enthusiasm from her concern. But I think that's okay. When God shows up, we might react. We do react with concern, confusion, worry. God showing up and asking us something of us is going to be a little bit troubling at times, isn't it? He might be asking quite a lot of us. And so our reactions aren't necessarily always going to be leaping at it with enthusiasm. I think that's okay. The angel's response is do not be afraid. Now that's a common response, isn't it, when angels appear? What is it about their appearance and their arrival that makes people so afraid? 
Is it their appearance, the brightness, the size? Is it something about being aware that you're in a holy place, surrounded by something holy? Is it the wings? Or is it the prospect of realizing what they're about to be told? Oh no, what they're going to ask of me? This is a valid concern, I think, because if an angel shows up, they're not usually showing up with an easy task. It's going to be a challenging task. And so what is the task? What is the angel asking of Mary? Well, she describes here in two different parts. Firstly, the human and earthly character and credentials of the baby in verses 30 to 33, and then the heavenly character and credentials. And it begins in verse 31 with an almost word-for-word repeat of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that famous prophecy, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Verse 31 says, You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Let's break that down. You will have a child. Okay, well, that's fairly normal, although Mary might be a bit concerned. I'm not married yet. I'm a virgin. How's that going to work? A son. Okay, great. In a patriarchal culture, a son's what every family does hope for. Give him the name Jesus. That means the Lord saves, and that's a name that's going to have special meaning for Jewish people of the time and for Mary. It's also a very common name at the time. I'm sure he wasn't the only Yeshua in the playground. He will be great. Well, that's something nice to hear about your child, isn't it? Every parent loves going to parents' evening and hearing their child described as great by their teacher, even more so before they're even born. The son of the Most High God. What now? The most high, a title that is given to God throughout the Old Testament, that's going to trigger something for Mary. Genesis 14, 19 says, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. So my son is going to be the son of the most high God, creator of heaven and earth. This is getting serious. Given the throne of Father David. A throne? How can I have a royal son? This is going to trigger the word Messiah for a first century Jew, I'm sure. And sure, Mary's a descendant or her family's from the line of David. That makes sense. But a throne, he will reign forever. His kingdom will will never end. Well, if Mary wasn't sitting down at the start, I expect she was by now. The hope-for Messiah was expected to reign just for... Uh, just to restore, sorry, God's rule and reign. But there was a Jewish expectation of a, a kingdom that would last forever. This promised child is not fulfilling just one of those hopes, but both of them. God's audacious salvation plan for the whole world in a child, in an unmarried teenage girl's womb. And what is this unmarried teenage girl's response? Well, I'd argue it's quite understated. How can this be since I'm a virgin? Not how can this be because you can't surely want me or how can this be because it all sounds a bit far-fetched or how can this be since we haven't really heard anything from God in a while. It's puzzlement rather than disbelief. Compare it with Zechariah who we heard about last week. Zechariah expressed doubt whereas Mary's response is more confusion. Zechariah asks for proof. How can I be sure of this, he said, whereas Mary is asking more for an explanation. Sometimes when God shows up, we are going to need to ask questions, to think through what he's asking of us. 
Because he's probably not, as I've already said, asking us to do something simple. And so the angel does give an explanation. And in within this single verse, 35, we see the basis and the foundation of the Christian faith in a three-person God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Most High will overshadow you. The Holy One born called the Son of God. Okay, it's not a scientific explanation, but it's an explanation of what's going to happen. This child that is promised is not just going to be anyone. Now that was already clear probably from the first description, isn't it? But it's going to be something, someone different to any of the other prophets and leaders of the Israel and the Jewish people from throughout the Old Testament. Anything that had ever been hoped for, this time it's God in human form. Emmanuel. And even though you didn't ask for a sign, here is one. Elizabeth, your barren old relative, is pregnant. Not only a sign, but a reassurance. Someone who might understand what you're going through. A confidant. God is putting his audacious salvation plan to work in the most unlikely way and choosing you. For nothing is impossible with God. Sometimes those words, though, they draw me up short and I'm like, Is it really that nothing is impossible with God? Sometimes to me, in my faith, I confess it doesn't feel like it. When I look at the injustice in the world and the suffering that so many are facing, and I think, if nothing is impossible, then why on earth are you not doing anything about it, God? And I confess that's where I struggle in my faith at times, believing that there is a God that could do something but doesn't always appear to be. But let's look at Mary's response. Mary's response is not to question God, not to ask, where have you been? How are people going to believe me? It is instead, I am the Lord's servant. Followed by, as another translation puts it, may everything you said about me come true. I do wonder how much Mary really understood, even after all these explanations, the full implications of what she'd been told. I doubt any of us would have. I'm sure I wouldn't have. She might be highly favoured, but she's not been given an easy task. Had she considered the repercussions that could come her way, the most serious of which could be death by stoning, if you follow the Deuteronomy law, though it wasn't usually enacted, certainly divorce from Joseph, public shame, likely marginalisation from the community. Instead, she says effectively, not my will but yours. which are, of course, taken from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But in effect, that's what she said here. Why? Well, the angel said, because nothing will be impossible with God. That word nothing is literally no word. And that word is the same Greek word Mary immediately repeats when she says, may your word to me be fulfilled. See, Mary's response is just to repeat back God's promise and to see her role as acting it out. When my faith is challenged and I'm asking that question, where are you, God? I look around the world and I see his people who, like Mary, have responded, I am the Lord's servant. Look, for example, at the horrible injustice around the world of children living in squalor, living on the streets as a result of poverty, neglect, sexual abuse. And then you look and see the work of great charities, people who've responded to God's call and said, I'm your servant. I'm going to do what I can to fix the injustices in the world to do God's work. Mary was asked to do the biggest task and with a servant-hearted attitude said yes. When God shows up, 
When God's asked us to play a part in his kingdom, what is our response? Maybe you're facing a big challenge that you know God is calling you to. In preparing for this sermon, I was reflecting on what's the biggest challenge that we feel that God has called me to, or us to, as a couple. And it was uh, something that happened about eight years ago. Many of you will know that we spent about 10 years in Nepal working at a Christian school. And about halfway through our 10 years, we actually came back to the UK for a while so that I could study. I've been part of the leadership team uh, of the school before. But while we were away, significant conflict ripped through that leadership team. And almost every member of the team resigned during the 12 months we were back in the UK. I'd originally hoped to return to Nepal in the October, having finished all my studies. But instead, we were asked to go back in July to get the school ready for the new school year, which started in August there. Becky and I spent several evenings on long walks around the town. We were staying in, talking it all over. All the challenges that we faced, whether we really could get back on that plane and go back to Nepal. We're going to have to need to unite as staff that have been hit like a hurricane, bring together various factions of the school, because many had either by choice or reluctantly been forced to take sides with the various leaders in the conflict. Reassure concerned parents worried about the impact on their child's education. And run a school as well. You know. <laughs> I knew God was calling me to take on this leadership role, but I didn't feel ready or equipped and was quite fearful of what was coming. Like Mary, the only option was to trust it was in God's hands. I needed a reminder that God chose the foolish things and the weak things of the world like a young virgin in a tiny village in Galilee, to play a huge and most unlikely part in his audacious salvation plan for all of humanity. Maybe you aren't facing a big challenge ahead at the minute, or not, aren't sure if God's calling you to anything specific right now, in which case let's keep it simple. Love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. God's calling us to play a part in his kingdom. It might be a big challenge or a big task he's got ahead of you this year, or it might just be the simple command on how we live our everyday life for him, is our response to either the same as Mary's, I am the Lord's servant. Or to put it more simply, yes, Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing scene that must have been to see the angel come before Mary. But we thank you for the faith of Mary who said, I am your servant. What a challenging and amazing thing to be able to say. Lord, help us to say it in our weakness, in the week ahead of us, in our daily lives, to say, yes, Lord, I'm your servant. What, do you, what will you have me do? And follow you as Mary did. In Jesus' name, amen.